You want to hear some crazy stories? Talk to Eric Buchanan at Eric Buchanan and Associates. You won't believe the lengths some insurance companies will go to deny you your disability insurance claim. I've told you about the building contractor who was denied his claim because he was making sandwiches at a sandwich shop. They figured if he could make sandwiches, he could build houses. But check this out. There was a pharmacist who went back to work part time so she could take care of her and her family. She accidentally signed up for full time life insurance benefits instead of part time. Unfortunately, she was brutally murdered by her ex-husband. And you guessed it. When her state went to file her life insurance claim, they denied it because they said, wait, she signed up for full time, but she was only part time. So they tried to reason with the insurance company and said, well, just pay her as if she was a part time employee. They said, no, we can't do that because she signed up as a full time employee. To make a long story short, Eric Buchanan and associates and his team went to work and they got that family paid. So if you've been denied your disability insurance claim or other insurance benefits that you deserve, look up Eric Buchanan and Associates online at BuchananDisability.com. That's BuchananDisability.com. Eric Buchanan and Associates, helping people who are denied disability, life, long-term care, and health insurance nationwide. What's your emergency? Uh, yeah, my uh, next door neighbor broke into my house and stole my drugs. Nine one what? A fun, unique podcast taking you behind the badge. Unbelievable stories exploring the day in the life of a first responder. Nine one what is made possible by Carlos Bail Bonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates, fighting for those that have been denied disability, life, long term care, and health benefits nationwide. Now, here's your host, Demarlin Dean. Welcome to Nine One What. Thank you so much for listening today, and uh, you know what. This sounds like a broken record because I always say we have a great show for you. But you know why I say that? Because we have a great show for you. I mean, I don't know what else to say. We just, you know, I'm just fortunate enough to connect with some really cool people and share some really cool stories with you all. And today is no exception. Today, my guest is Terry Tucker. And, you know, Terry is now a motivational speaker and author and an international podcast guest. But he'll know by the end of this show that this is the most fun he's ever had on a podcast. But he actually played some uh, Division One college basketball. And uh, I mean, he's done it all. Has a, a, a marketing a master's degree from Boston University. And, you know, it's been a marketing executive. So we can we can kind of nerd out on marketing since that's what I do in my uh, my my real world. But you know what? Without any any further Ado, Terry, come on board. How are you doing today, sir? I am great, Marlon. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Absolutely. So, Terry, I know I just read off a bunch of stuff from your bio, but I want you to introduce Terry. Tell me, just tell us your story, Terry. Sure. I, I, I was uh, born and grew up on the south side of Chicago. I am the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And as you Holy. mentioned... I played college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. I have a brother who's six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame. Another brother who was six foot six, 
who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was 6'5". So I sort of joked that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, not a prayer's chance you were going to see anything that was going on. But our wow. five foot eight inch mother was always the boss. And, you know, mom always wanted to sit in the front front pew in, in church. And it was like, mom, we can't do that. Nobody's going to like us because nobody's going to be able to see what was going on. But man, um, very fortunate. Uh, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And um, when I graduated, I moved home to find a job. And as you mentioned, I found that first job in the marketing department at the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain. Yes, that was my first job out of high school. Out of high school was working at Wendy's. Working at Wendy's, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and that was the good news. The bad news is that I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, as you mentioned, started out at Wendy's, uh, then switched to hospital administration, and then made the major pivot in my life to get into law enforcement. I started out as a reserve officer with the city of Santa Barbara, California, and then eventually became a full-time police officer uh, with the city of Cincinnati uh, in, in Ohio. I was an undercover narcotics investigator. I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. When I got out of law enforcement, started my own school security consulting business, um, coached girls high school basketball, which was very interesting, uh, <laughs> became an author in 2020, but for the last 11 years have been battling a rare form of cancer. And then I guess just finally, my wife and I have been married for almost 30 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Ah, that's a very new branch. My, I think my son uh, just came out of or just graduated. Well, now it's been a year and a half. And I want to say when he graduated, it I think it was the first class of uh, Space Force folks that graduated yeah. too, or very closely. Like it could have been. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a yeah. very, 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 it started in Trump's last year in office. So uh -huh. it really, it's only been around for two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's and it's crazy to think that we have that branch and what they're going to be doing. It's kind of it's kind of scary. So before we get into the police stuff, you know, right now, you, part of a lot of what you do is motivational speaking. But as you tell me, you know, some of the things that you've dealt dealt with health wise. If you don't mind sharing us what you've been going through there and then tell us how you stay motivated enough to motivate other people. Yeah, so 2012, I'm a girls' high school basketball coach in Texas, have a callus break open on the bottom of my foot. And initially, I don't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine, and he took an x-ray. He said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there, and I can cut it out. And he did, and he showed it to me. It's just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. and the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. And so finally, he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You have an incredibly rare form of melanoma, which we usually equate to too much exposure to the sun, and it affects the melon, the pigment in our skin. Right. Said, but you have this incredibly rare form that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. 
And because it was so rare, he recommended I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and be treated. And so I did. They excised the bottom of my foot. They took out all the lymph nodes in my groin. And, and then because at the time, melanoma was pretty much a death sentence, they put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon. Now, the side effects of the interferon were that it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. Mm. I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So wow. imagine having the flu every week for five years. Wow. And as my oncologist used to say, this is not a cure. This is we're trying to kick the can down the road. Five years of interferon became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. No, so not at all. No, no. Somehow I survived that. Um, but as soon as I stopped the interferon, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on the bottom of my foot. That necessitated the amputation of my foot in 2018. Cancer worked its way up my leg uh, into my shin 2019, two more surgeries. And then in 2020, right in the middle of the COVID pandemic, uh, an undiagnosed tumor kind of in my ankle area grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. Oh, my wow. Recourse was to have my left leg amputated. Uh, and I also found out I had tumors in my lungs, which I am still being treated for. And I know that sounds like a really dark and ugly journey, and it certainly has been. But I, I, I just, I've learned a couple of things. I've learned a lot of things during these last 11 years, one of which is you really don't know yourself, I don't think, until you've been tested by some form of adversity. And secondly, I really think cancer has made me a better human being. Wow. Now, I want to sit on that for a minute. How do you how do you feel that? That that's made you a better human being? I, I think it's made me better because I have appreciated the things that are important in life. You know, my faith, my family, my friends. And, you know, I I've kind of come to, to the understanding now in my life that I, I'm on a clinical trial drug now that more than likely is not going to save my life. But it may save the life of somebody five years from now, 10 years from now, based on the data that the doctors are gleaning from my blood tests and my, and my uh, scans and things like that. And I think that's one thing I learned, first of all, being part of a team in athletics, you know, being part of a team in law enforcement, being part of the team that my family is, is that being part of something bigger than yourself is really our should be our goal in life, that it's really not about us. It's about other people. And, and I think people that go into law enforcement, I think the ones that go into law enforcement, you know, because they want to kick butt and take names and all that stuff, you're in it for the wrong reason, because right. eventually you're going to run across somebody who's bigger, stronger, faster than you are, and you're going to get your butt kicked, or you might get somebody else hurt along with it. And, and, yeah. and that's that's the fact of the matter. And And so, you know, people who get into this job do so because they have a concern. They want to make a difference in their community. And if people understood that, they understood the motivation, they understood the fact that you're going to miss holidays and birthdays, you're, you're not going to make a lot of money, you're going to stand out in the cold and the rain and that kind of stuff, that you do that because you care about other people, I think maybe people would look again at law enforcement in a, in a different kind of way. Well, and, and hopefully by by me doing this podcast, people will understand exactly what you said, because frankly, you know, when 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 we joined, um, you know, on the 
on the show to get ready to, to, to record. You're sitting down so I can't see your leg or anything like that. All I was greeted with was this huge smile. You know, I, you know, I was like, wow, this guy, you know, you're, you're bringing me up. It's the end of the day for me. And here's this huge smile. No one would know based on that, all of the adversity that you've not only been through, but are still going through. So that's, that's amazing that you do have that attitude and you're able to share that gift with other people and, and motivate them in the midst of going through your own struggles. So that's, that's amazing. Kudos to you, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah. So hard shift here, <laughs> but I did want to make sure everybody understood some of what you're doing, but how sure. did you go from being in marketing and all those things to becoming a police officer and, and probably taking a pretty big pay cut? I, I did. And, and there is a backstory. And, and, and the backstory is this. My grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago doing prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States during the Great Depression, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And then when the gangs, you know, Al Capone and those guys were shooting up the town. And he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad, who was an infant at the time, always remembered the stories that my grandmother told of that knock on the door. Mrs. Tucker, grab your son. Come with us. Your husband's been shot. And let's be honest, you know, trauma medicine in 1933 when my grandfather was shot <laughs> is a whole lot different than trauma medicine in 2023. So yeah. when I expressed an interest in going you know, down that path of following in my grandfather's footsteps, my father was absolutely not. You're going to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. <laughs> but that's what my dad wanted me to do. That's yeah. not what I felt my passion was. So when I graduated from college, as I mentioned, my father was, was dying of cancer. I had a choice. I could have said, well, you know what, dad? You and mom have done everything for my brothers and I, but sorry, I'm going to go blaze my own trail or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do. And so now my resume makes a little bit more sense. So my yeah. first two jobs were in business because that's what my father wanted to do, wanted me to do. And I sort of joke, I, you know, I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams. And I was a 37 year old rookie police officer who took a whole lot more Tylenol in the police academy than everybody else. <laughs> I bet. Um, and, I, and being 6'8 doesn't make a lot of those things that you have to do that easy. I mean, absolutely. come on. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Man. So I have to ask, you're a 6'8 to your brother 6'7 to your another brother 6'6 to your father 6'5. Did y'all call him Shorty? Uh, we didn't call him anything because, you know, the, when I was growing up, there was only two ways to die. That was either natural causes or talking back to your parents. So we never talked back to our parents whatsoever. It, it was always, oh, yes, ma'am, man. yes, sir, no, ma'am, no, sir, because I, I wanted to live past the next day. So. That is hilarious. All right. Well, let's just jump into some of your uh, your calls and some of your experiences as a 6'8 police officer. I'm going to go right to the, the the undercover narcotics. So I'm assuming that you were the officer that had informants going out and making buys, or were you actually making buys yourself? I did make buys. I did not make a lot of buys. I did. I did use uh, informants and, you know, sat on places and things like that. Uh, but, you know, people always ask me, like, you're six foot eight. How could you possibly? I never changed my appearance. I never grew my hair long. I never grew a beard. I never really did any of that. And what I tell people is in that industry and I and illicit drugs is certainly an industry. What motivates it is greed. So as right. long as you have money, you can find somebody 
you know, to buy drugs from. And so I, I remember one time, and, and this is kind of a funny story. I was working the night shift in the drug unit. Uh, my former partner, when we were in uniform and we were actually in the academy together, she was working the day shift. And mm-hmm. she called me and she said, hey, I've got these kids that want to come down from Dayton and sell you mushrooms so that they have money to party in Cincinnati. Will you buy from them? And I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. I said, but what's the story? And so we we, con- we concocted. So I... <laughs> I still can't wait to do this. I became a professor of metallurgy from the <laughs> University of Cincinnati that was going to buy these drugs. I don't know anything about metal other than if you stand it out in the rain, it rusts. You know, that's my <laughs> extent of metal. So I met these kids in a park. You know, I, I, I was, you know, I was in plain clothes, but I had a briefcase and all that kind of stuff. Met them in a park, you know. The two of them jumped into the car, you know, show me the mushroom. Yeah, that's good. You know, I, I give them the 200 bucks and they get out. And then all of a sudden they're swarmed by my colleagues and a couple uniform cars. So instead of partying in Cincinnati, they became guests of the Hamilton County Justice Center. That <laughs> that was kind of the story. So that's funny. Hamilton County. Hey, I'm in Hamilton County as well. So um, but not in Ohio. Uh, well, while we're on that subject of of. um narcotics and dumb folks that's kind of dumb <laughs> you actually had someone try to sell you drugs and they knew you were police it was i mean we were my my partner and i at the time in the drug unit it was a friday night uh, we had the weekend off we were tired it, we really weren't doing anything specific we weren't doing by bus we weren't really sitting on places and stuff like that we we're just kind of driving around and we literally had our, our unit was called the street corner unit, SCU. And, and, and we had street corner unit, Cincinnati Police Department T-shirts on. <laughs> and, and this guy, we were stopped at a, a stoplight downtown. And this guy comes up to us and he's like, what do you need? And we, we looked at each other and then we looked at him and we pointed to our shirts like, uh, we're the police. And he looked around and he's like, yeah, but what do you need? And we looked at each other. It's like, all right, this guy is too stupid to be out among us. So he's going to have to get arrested right now. So oh. we jumped out on him. And, and the partner I was with, this guy was faster than lightning. I mean, he was the guy tried to run yeah, two, two steps. The guy, my partner had him. I was I was the old white guy who you know wasn't <laughs> wasn't going to chase down anybody. But he grabbed him. And so we we locked him up. And it was just kind of one of those things where it's like, even when you don't try, sometimes, you know, they jump into the back of your car, so yes. to speak. And, and this was one of those times where this guy was like, I'm sorry, you're, you're just too too ignorant right now to live amongst us. You, you need to be incarcerated right now. And that. He, had, he had a couple rocks of crack on him and that. So it was it was kind of a, a very easy arrest. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I've had when I was actually in marked a marked unit and in uniform, of course, I had a guy that, you know, trying to be cool and walk up and talk to the police officer and act like nothing's going on and had weed falling out of his pocket, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, come on. It's, it's hanging out of your pocket right there. You know, I had a, I had a guy, I think I've shared this on another podcast or another episode where, um, you know how in the middle of the night or, or whatever, you'll go to a convenience store and hang out there and get a cup of coffee. By the way, folks, you're not hanging out there just to be hanging out. You're hanging out. They want you to come there as security. You know, it keeps the idiots usually from from coming in in the middle of the night. And as I'm standing there, I'm smelling weed. I'm like, what's what's going on? And there's a guy at the back of the store at the microwave drying out his weed and gotten wet. (laughs) He puts it in the microwave and heats it up. So it's 
filling the store <laughs> with with the aroma of weed. And I'm like, you know, one of those dude, I'm, I wouldn't even try to arrest anybody. But come on, you, you got to go. You know, you I, I remember when my partner and I were in uniform as well. I remember we went to this house. For, it was a domestic. I, I mean, it really, they weren't hitting each other. They weren't threatening to do anything. So it really wasn't a domestic. It was, it was just kind of a family trouble. And and the guy got, you know, it's like, why are you here? And it's like, well, because she called and, you know, she felt that this might escalate. We wanted to make sure that it doesn't. And he's like, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I don't need, I don't need you here. And literally right next to his easy chair was this big bag of marijuana. And, and I looked at him like, you're a law-abiding citizen, huh? Like, uh, what would this be there, sir? Uh, you know, and so, so we ended up writing him a ticket, you know, yeah. because he ticked us off. And then we used to, when I was in the drug unit, once a month, we would do what we called sweeps. And they were like 12-hour shifts where we would either go by ourselves or we'd work with an informant. And I, I went literally to gas up one of the undercover cars that we were using. And I'm at the gas station. I gas up the car. I'm, I'm ready to walk in to pay for it. And the guy in front of me who's parked, he's got this huge bag of weed on his on his lap. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you got to be kidding me. So I, I knew uh, we had drug dogs, that, and they were in marked cars and marked uniform. And I'm like, you know, not the best idea to probably stick a gun in this guy's face and say, you know, I'm taking your weed because yeah. sure he's going to get robbed. So I had I had Mike come up with his dog in you know in uniform, flipped his lights on, and then we, we walked up together. And I'm like, I, I'm sorry, this is mine. And he's like, you were parked right behind me, weren't you? I'm like, yeah, I was. And when I went to pay, I saw your big bag of weed. So probably not a good idea to put it out in public where people can see it. That's so, just crazy. That's just is. crazy. Well, while we're on drug talk, this is a um, – and notice to everyone to really understand who you're dating, who your boyfriend or girlfriend is, who you're sharing your house with. You had an interesting situation where um, someone's partner was, you know, being creative, had a little side hustle, selling stuff out of her apartment. Tell me about that. I'm trying to remember that story. Um, it, it was a uh, you had a it was a gentleman that was well sold drugs out of his girlfriend's house. Yes, yes. Sorry. I mean, there's so many of them, you know. I yes. mean, we, we could be on here for hours, as you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I was getting a complaint when I was in the drug unit that that this they were selling out of this apartment. And it was a ground floor apartment, and it was in a really nice area, and the apartment was nice, it was well kept. And I thought, no, can't be. So, so I sat on it a couple of times, and I'd sat on it for about three different nights. And I was really getting ready to close the complaint as unfounded that, you know, I, I couldn't find anything. But mm-hmm. I thought, you know what, I'll go back one more time and, and I'll sit on it. And that particular night, I, you know, I, somebody got out of the car, went up to the, the sliding glass door, knocked on the door. I saw the hand to hand. I couldn't see exactly what it was, but there was a hand to hand. The woman got in the car and, and, uh, and drove away. And so I thought, I'm going to follow her. So I followed her and she, she ends up going to a park and the parks were closed. So that gave me probable cause to, to stop her. Yeah. I called for a uniform car. They, they let her up and, and we started to talk. And, you know, I, I talked my way into searching her car and, and found a rock of crack. And I, I asked her, I said, uh, you know, and I ran her and she had no record. I said, now you realize that this is going to be a felony on your record and it's probably going to affect you the rest of your life unless you want to help me. Mm-hmm. What do you need me to do? I said, where did you get this? And she told me, and it was, it was from the guy and stuff like that. So I thought, great. Okay. So we did a, you know, we did a search warrant. We, 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 well, we actually sent her back wired and she bought again from the guy. So then after that, we did a search warrant and we had SWAT kick in the door 
and and this this was a, a really kind of a funny situation because the the guy was literally looking through the peephole as SWAT was knocking on the door. It was it was not a no knock search warrant. It was a knock search warrant. Uh-huh. They were knocking on the door. He didn't open the door. Well, they used the shotgun to blow off the the doorknob. And, and the door not hit him, hit him right in the, oh, the private area. Yeah, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, now. <laughs> so, I, I, I go into, so he, you know, we get him and, and we, we go in the apartment. And again, it, it's not a typical drug apartment where it's, I mean, this place was I'm like, man, I live here. This is, this is immaculate, you know? And finally, I don't know, we, we searched the place, got more dope. And all of a sudden this very attractive woman comes in and it was like, do you live here? Yeah, yes. We, we, I live here. Who is he? He's my boyfriend. Oh, what are you doing? I mean, you know, she, you know, a big hole in her door, and I mean, all kinds of, you know. Where she's, it's like, what's going on? So we explained to her what was going on. She, and she got so upset because she worked nights, and while she was at work, he sold dope out of the apartment. He was on an electronic monitoring unit. <laughs> And his mother did not have a landline phone, and you needed a landline phone to be on an, an EMU, an electronic monitoring unit. And yeah. his girlfriend did, so he was staying with his girlfriend while you know while he was you know on probation or waiting for his case to come up on something else, mm-hmm. and was selling dope out of her apartment. She had no. I mean, we were convinced she had absolutely no idea what was going on because it was. I mean, obviously, they didn't date anymore after this. But, <laughs> I would hope you know, not. We didn't arrest her. We did arrest, obviously, him. And, and the other woman was able to work her case off. And so didn't have a felony arrest. Man, that's just that's just crazy. Crazy. Yeah, it, it, I, I, you know, we looked at her like, man, you better have you have better taste in men than, you know, drug dealers. <laughs> and stuff like yeah, I mean, you know, the ankle monitor was a clue that, you know, he's not a choir boy necessarily. But exactly. <laughs> So you also had uh, we're going to shift gears to some of the funnier calls, um, or a couple of funny calls that you had. And one of them was dealing with a DUI suspect on the on the way to jail. Yes. Um, so in Ohio, I believe it was your third felony or your third DUI arrest in a seven year period was a felony. So you actually mm-hmm. had to take them to jail. Before that, you just take them back to the district, have them blow. If they refused, that was fine. But then you either put them in a cab and send them home or you had somebody come and get them as a responsible adult. So we are, this person, unfortunately, it was his third felony or his third DUI in seven years. So we had to take him to jail. And so he's, you know, we did all the paperwork. We're, we're, we have him in the back of the car and we are literally, our district happened to be kind of in a, in a neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. so there were houses and stuff like that. And so we're driving down the street to get to the highway and he's in the back seat. And we see, I, I mean, probably two blocks ahead of us, this car pulls backs out of its driveway and literally just takes out the mailbox, the trash cans, everything that's out there, just takes it out. And the guy in the back seat's like, you, you, you better stop that person. They're drunk. You know, <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> And so, you know, we, we get behind the car and we watch it, and, and it, it, it's literally all over the road. And our procedure was we were not allowed to gauge in an, in another uh, police action if we had a prisoner in the car. But sure. it was also, this. there's no way we could let this person continue to drive. So we did pull the car over and called for another car to 
take the DUI, why we took our person to jail and just use us as witnesses. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, just put us down. This is this is the the driving we observed. So we had probable cause to stop it. And it was a woman and she was she was totally she would have killed somebody. I, oh, I mean, she was man. so drunk that it wasn't even worth we're talking about, but I mean, to have your prisoner in the back seat tell you that we better stop that car because the person is drunk. What I mean, we were we were laughing so hard it was almost hard to get on the radio and say, you know, we're going to make a traffic stop. <laughs> well, he wasn't responsible himself, but he was certainly trying to be responsible for the other person. <laughs> oh, so we all have those favorite calls sometimes, or, or calls that we know when we go there, it's going to be. A little different. The the caller is strange or the caller is not necessarily um, we know it's not legitimate, but you have to go. You actually had someone uh, a call with a with a lady that um, she actually had some some goodies for you when you got there. Tell us about that. This was unfortunately a, a, a lonely woman who we believe had had mental problems. I mean, this was this was before hoarding was really, you know, something that had been diagnosed as a, as a, as a serious mental disorder. And, and so we, we, we get to the woman's house and, and we'd been there many times. She was always hearing a sound. And, and we were, like I said, we work nights, 11 at night till seven in the morning. And she would call like at three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I mean, most people are in bed. I mean, all the lights in her house would be on and she would call to say she heard a noise outside and something like that. It was it was more sad than it was anything. But she always had had like freshly baked cookies for us, you know, and it was just kind of I mean, you, you know, well, well, ma'am, we're really not allowed to take. Oh, OK, we'll have we'll sit down and have a cookie with you. You, know, you, you spend a few minutes with her and you, and you have a cookie. And eventually we were able to to get a hold of her daughter and, and just let her know what was going on, that this was a repetitive kind of thing. I mean, it really wasn't. It, I mean, technically it was 911 abuse, but yeah. uh, on the other hand, it was, it was just a, a, a scared, demented, uh, elderly woman. And, and we knew that based on, you know, I mean, you don't have, you know, a thousand copies of time magazine, you know, in your house and, and, and just a lot of things like that, that, that gave us clues that there was more going on here than she was just afraid that she did have some kind of dementia or, or onset Alzheimer's or something like that. So, yeah. but I'll tell you, she made great cookies <laughs> and it was always variety. It was like, sometimes it was sugar. Sometimes it was chocolate chip. Sometimes it was peanut butter. It was like, yeah, we should probably, Hey, we'll take care of this run. We'll handle it. You know, it's like, we've been there before and absolutely, you know, would you like some milk with that? No, we're good. We're fine. The cookies are fine. You know, but it was just, it, it, it was sad on one hand, but like I said, this woman, her culinary skills were outstanding. So that's good. Well, you know, like I said, sometimes those calls can be a nuisance. And as a police officer, you have that discretion. Obviously you recognize there was some other things going on. But, you know, it's still hard at times when you're like, come on, this is the 12th time we've been there and, you know, two months or whatever. But you have to balance that, you know, being sensitive, being responsible, responsive, because the one time that you slept it off and don't go, it turns out to be something. And then that's not good for anybody. But, yeah, you know, it's still fun, though, that uh, or, or at least, you know, going to there. You're going to get some good cookies. So that's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so before we uh, shift gears a little bit and go to some of the scarier calls we've been on, I want to talk about your most embarrassing moment on the job. That was um, has to do with um, a little conversation you had with a someone breaking into a church. <laughs> yeah, this was a. Uh... <laughs> 
It's the most embarrassing, and it's also one I got a commendation for. So, which um, <laughs> really is kind of funny. Um, on our beat, usually the bad guys left the churches alone, whether whether they were Catholic or, or you know Methodist or Lutheran, whatever they were, left the churches alone. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this was literally right out of roll call. The the it was a Catholic church. And the priest was getting ready to go to bed. It, it was a Saturday night. He had mass in the morning. And he looked out and he saw this, this guy carrying away a bag of groceries. And he's like, okay, kind of coming through the church lot and going out the driveway. And he's like, oh, that's kind of strange. And, and, and then, you know, as he's getting ready to go to bed, he looks out again and he sees the same guy carrying a uh, computer box, a, ter- a terminal box out and he's like, those are the terminals. That's the same box we store in, in our basement. They have a food pantry and, and electronics that they give out to the neighbors and stuff like that. And so he calls the police. And so we get there and with, with a couple other cars, because like I said, it's right out of roll call. So really nothing's happening yet. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, well, why don't my partner and I, it's our beat. You know, it's something we need to handle. We'll, we'll go in the church. Somebody else drive our car, get out of here. Everybody leave the area, but stay close and stay on the radio. So literally, my partner had this great view of the the driveway. So we're able to see somebody coming onto the property and somebody leaving the property. And we were there probably 20, 25 minutes. And we're thinking, we really can't stay on this much longer. But I I told her, I said, look, you keep watch. I'll go down in the basement with the priest and I'll I'll get the information for the report, what's been stolen and things like that. So I'm, I'm down in the basement with the priest. And my partner comes on the radio and she's like, there's a guy coming up the driveway. And there, there was a, it was in the basement. So there's a basement window there and it's covered in plastic. And literally we had nowhere to go. Thank God it was winter and we were wearing, you know, our jackets. Our jackets were dark and our pants were dark. And I told the priest, I said, Father, don't move. And literally the guy pushes across, uh, uh, pushes away the plastic, sticks his head in, <laughs> looks around, and then, leave, you know, then comes back out. And I mean, I am literally five feet from him. I'm just standing there, just standing there. I mean, but he obviously didn't see me because all of a sudden he comes in the window and I literally reached out and grabbed him by the back of his collar and his pants and threw him on the ground and started to, you know, MF, get your hands behind your back and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, oh my God, there's a priest right here. I'm Catholic. You know, and I'm like, there's a priest right here. And, I, you know, we handcuff him and we take him up. And he, he eventually took us to where the other stuff was so we were able to recover the property and stuff. like. And, we, and my partner and I got a commendation for that, you know. And I'm thinking, yeah, and I had to go to confession before I went to Mass the next day. Like, a Father, sorry about that. Uh, didn't mean oh, a little coarse language. He was pretty cool about it. But I still was like, oh, man, I came home and told my wife, man, I MF right in front of a priest. And it was like, no, this is not good. So. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, well, you know, we all say things we probably shouldn't have, or exactly. you know, should, but you know, in the, in the heat of the moment, you know, and a lot of times that's that's uh, unfortunately sometimes that's the only language people understand. Um, and com- to comply, you know, you try to be too too soft or too nice, and you're just gonna they're just gonna run over you. So, just well, the, you know. the, the the funny thing about that was literally, I mean, obviously this guy thought there was nobody there, there was nobody in the basement, and came through that window. And when I grabbed him by the collar in the back of his belt, I can't even describe the scream that he let out. I'm sure it was like, all right, I'm in God's house. This is one of God's angels. It's like, you know, you're back now. 
I imagine so. I imagine so. Oh, man. Well, as I look at the, some of the top scariest calls that you put on, I mean, you've got you kind of hit the trifecta. Um, you've been shot at. You almost shot someone that would, would have probably changed your life tremendously. And high speed chases. I mean, they're all there. So take us through some of these uh, scary calls that you've encountered over in your time as a police officer. Sure. So we, we had this bar on our on our beat um, and we would we would drive around and we would run the license plates of, you know, the cars that were parked outside. And we ran this one plate and, and this guy had a felony warrant. And so we were like, all right, you know, when the bar closes at two, we'll, we'll come back and and see if maybe we can see him, you know, get in the car and drive and stuff like that. And sure enough, uh, we were parked across the street at the Shell lot and we see somebody come out of the bar, get in the car go around the block and, and and we knew they were going around the block and they were going to get on the freeway. So we, we waited and here he comes and the light changes and we get in behind him, light him up, pulls over. And yeah, no, he had a felony warrant. And so we, you know, we get out on him, you know, we, we get his information to make sure it's the same guy, you know, it's the same warrant. Yeah, it certainly was. And we order him out of the car and he takes off. Now he doesn't drive on the road to get to the freeway, he literally drives down the embankment. I mean, ah. through the grass onto the freeway. We're taking off after him. And I remember we were driving down the highway. It's dark. It's night. It's raining. And we're doing 130 miles an hour. And my partner oh. and I looked at each other and it's like, nope, this is not <laughs> worth us getting killed over. So we discontinued the pursuit. The, the hilarious thing was he gets off at the next exit goes through this little kind of uh, quaint community of businesses, still driving like a maniac. And uh, Officer Williams from the, the next district over, just driving to the area, you know, in case something happens. And he's a, this guy literally wraps his car around the telephone pole. And wow. he's getting out as, as Bob Williams is pulling up on him. <laughs> he comes on the radio. He's like, I got your guy here. It isn't much of a car that's left, but he's okay. You know, and so oh, we ended, in the end, we ended up getting him. But it was just one of those things where it's like, you know, I know the cars are well-maintained, but I don't want to be driving that, especially in the rain at night. It's like, nope, not worth it. So we, that was, that, that was one issue. Um, my car wouldn't do 130, so I never had that problem. So. Yeah, I, I mean, we didn't like think. I'm like, and this guy was. I mean, and he was he was getting away from us. I mean, it wasn't like you know we were we weren't probably going to catch him anyway because I don't remember what he was in, but it was pretty souped up. Yeah, it, it wasn't anything, but you know, scrap metal by the time he finished with it. So, so that was one. The other one, and, and this one is still somewhat raw, somewhat emotional for me. And and this this kid is probably in his 30s by now. But it was one of those, you know, we've all been working, you know, and it's like the last call of the day. You, you know, you're heading into the district. You know, you want to tag your property. You want to get your bosses to sign your reports and stuff like that. And it's we quit at 7. It's like 6.30. So we, we headed into the district. We have property to tag. And we get this call. And it's like it, it came out as a domestic violence. And we're like, you know, you're just like, oh, gosh. All right, let's get there and, and you know. Get, get yeah. rid of this call so we can go home. Yeah, in the shift, you don't want anything. You just want to go home. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yes. you, we don't want to mess with this. So, so we get there and we get to the house, and this this kid comes out, and he's you know he's huffing and puffing, and he's like, you know, you, you need to arrest my parents. You know, they committed domestic violence. I'm like, hold on there, you know, Skippy. Let's <laughs> let's talk to mom and dad. And so my partner, you know, separated them. My partner's talking to him. I'm talking to the parents. Mom's like. 
yeah, we all went to bed, you know, family went to bed and, and this was a school night. <clears throat> and she said, I got up at about two o'clock in the morning to go to the bathroom and I checked on my children and he was gone. I'm like, oh, okay. That's a whole different twist on the story that he didn't bother to divulge. Right. And so uh, she, she said, when I, you know, she said, I went to bed, I didn't know where he was, went to bed, got up, you know, get the rest of the kids ready for school. And he was back. So I took my cloth slipper and I hit him on his butt three times. Like, oh, okay. And this is domestic violence. So, you know, my partner and I get together and, you know, we basically look at the kid and it's like, this is not domestic violence. This is called parenting. Right. This is your parents being allowed to discipline you for doing something stupid, like sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night. So he gets all huffing and he goes stomping down the street. And we're like, you know what? Just let him go cool off. That's fine. 14-year-old kid. So we're giving the mom and dad information about things that, you know, resources that are available. He comes stomping back. And, you know, we're like, okay, fine. He goes inside. No big deal. His, his younger brother's sitting on the front step. And he goes inside. And we're literally in the middle of the front yard talking to mom and dad, giving them literature about resources that they can use. He comes out on the front step with an AK-47. Wow. And it was like, oh, my God. And we had nowhere to go. There was nowhere to hide. There was no cover. There was nothing. And so we both drew down on him. And, you know, we're basically, he had it kind of at a port arms kind of position. So mm -hmm. it wasn't pointing at us or anything like that. And we're screaming at him, you know, put the gun down, you know, all the kind of stuff that's going on. And, I mean, literally, I was moving to the trigger, you know, to take up the slack when he dropped the gun. And we were like, oh, oh, my God. You know, I mean, yeah. just, you know, if you would have taken our blood pressure, then we would probably have been legally dead. And <laughs> so, you know, we, we get him, we, we handcuff him, we take the gun. And it was like, you know, you're like, do you understand how close you came to almost dying? Not yeah. only would I probably have killed you, I probably would have killed your little brother who was sitting on the steps, you know, right below where you were standing. Like, do you understand your, you know. And we were ticked. and now the boss is coming on the radio like, where are you? And it was like, uh, Sarge, uh, we just had somebody pull an AK on us. All of a sudden you hear everybody in the district, you know, fires are screaming, you know, everybody wants to see this. So we, 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 we got the gun. The thing about it is we went to court on the kid. We charged him, went to court on the kid. He was the greatest kid in the world. He played on his football team. He had good grades. He was, I mean, it was, I gave him my business card. I'm like, look, if you ever want to do a knucklehead thing like that again, please call me. Yeah. Please call me before you do something stupid. I said, because I almost killed you tonight. And I thought, oh my God, you, you have, you're a kid that has so much potential mm -hmm. in life, so much opportunity to do something with your life. You're a good student. You're a good athlete. You can be anything you want. And I almost ended your life tonight. And here I am, a white cop who would have shot a black 14-year-old, and it would have been like, yeah, you, you wanted to shoot that kid. No. Oh, my God. I, I, you know, it's still raw in, yeah. in, in, with me when I think about that. And, and honestly, you know, it's been... I don't know how many, 15 years, 16 years since that happened. And I'm like, I still think about that kid from time to time. It's like, what's he doing now? Yeah. You know, hopefully, yeah. He, you know, he went to college or he's got a great job or he's in trade school, whatever he did. I mean, hopefully he made something of his life. And it, it was it, it was a horrible experience. Yes. And that could have been so 
different. Um, you know, the outcome could have been so different. And, you know, that's that's one of those things that I've found. You know, I've never had to I've never been put in a position where I've had to shoot anyone. I have been shot at and I'll let you tell us that story here next. But the officers that I've had on my show, when they talk about the times that they have had to use deadly force, the 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 common thing is, you know, they, there, there's a little anger inside of them because they were put in that position to have to do that. It's not what you hear people think and say, oh, that's what they're looking for. They're doing this. They're just they're out here, you know, hunting people. No, it's that's not the case. And, um, you know, most of them are like, why? You know, why? Why? did you put me in the position where I had to make that decision? Uh, yeah. Cause it's not an easy thing to live with. Even, even, even when it's justified, um, it's not Absolutely. an easy thing to leave, live with. And I don't think people really understand that. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we do have a few knuckleheads that, that do stupid things that just shed a horrible light on the entire profession. And, um, you know, I'm not sure. I guess it's because police have the power to take your life because because there's so many other professions where you have people that do stupid stuff, but they don't throw the entire profession out with it. They say that doctor was bad or that whatever was bad. They don't say all doctors are bad when you have, you know, doctors that are, uh, you know, sexually abusing people while they're under, you know, anesthesia. Uh, and so it's just it's sad that that in, in this profession, especially when when one or a few act up, everybody really does have to pay for it. So it, it does. And, and it, you know, and I always tell people and, and because I, I've done, I've done probably over 600 podcasts with people all over the world. And a lot of times we'll talk about either my time on SWAT or my time in law enforcement. And, and sometimes people will want to take me to task on that. And what I always tell them to do is, you know, most police departments or at least good sized police departments have citizens police academies. Mm-hmm. And I always encourage them, go take that class, you know, go, you know, let them put you in scenarios where you have to make a choice. You know, am I going to shoot this guy? Am I not going to shoot this guy? And, and you know, I, I'm legally justified, but am I still going to do it? And things like that, because it's it's easy to judge people in the abstract and, and say, you know, well, I would have never done that or I would have shot the gun out of their hand. Or I, I mean, I've got a friend of mine who's a former Navy SEAL sniper. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you know, we train, we, I mean, you and I trained for center mass. We didn't train to hit somebody in the hand or, you know, <laughs> hit them in the thigh or something like that. And, and you and I both know that under duress, you know, your fine motor skills, you know, go out the window, you get tunnel vision, you're hearing, I mean, all the stresses that, that are all the things that your body does under stress that people don't understand. And no. that's why I encourage them, go take that class. It will change and your life. And I have that conversation. Yeah, it will change your life. In that situation. Yeah, even just the, um, you don't even have to take the entire class, but even if you just do the scenarios where it's the shoot, yeah. the no-shoot scenarios, yeah. you, will, you will come out with a totally different understanding of what it's like, you know? I remember going through the academy when we did that, and, you know, we were, had fake guns and everything, but... You're you're sweating. I mean, yeah. your heart's just beating out of your chest. And this was just you're watching the video screen and having to react. And yeah. it's 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 uh, it's extremely difficult. So it really, you know, but, but that's you make a great point about, you know, like I, ours was called fats, you know, firearms training simulation where the screens in front of you and, you know, you got the fake guns and all that. But I thought what was, you know. Going through it was great, but what our department did then would would be like basically debrief you. What did you see? Mm -hmm. You know, when did you see it? Why did you do what you did? So, I mean, it's, 
you know, we always used to say you can you can be justified in your actions, but if you can't articulate why you did what you did, or you can't articulate, you know, you had probable cause or reasonable suspicion, or you smelled marijuana, or you know, whatever it was, then even if you're, it's a it's a good shooting, you're going to come out looking bad on it. You right. want to be able to articulate why you did what you did. So our department was great about not just running you through the scenario, but also asking you a bunch of questions afterwards about what you saw, why you did what you did, when you did it, and things like that. So yeah. I was very thankful for that. Yeah. And because of that tunnel vision that you just mentioned, it's amazing what you don't see or what exactly. you think you saw. You think yeah. you saw certain things and then you go back and look and you're like, wow, you know, I, I didn't see or I didn't see that person over here or whatever it may be. It's just it's just really, really crazy. Yeah. How many times did you shoot? Uh, I, I, I don't know. You know? <laughs> yes. I, shot, I shot until the threat was no longer a threat. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So not only did you almost have to shoot someone in this situation, and there may have been others, but you've also been shot at. Tell me about that. Yeah, we were uh, we were in the drug unit and uh, I my partner was off that night. So I was riding with with another uh, two person uh, they weren't husband and wife, but you know, they were kind of acting like they were husband and wife as a man and a woman. And I was, I was playing some drunk guy in the back seat. And so we pulled up on the corner and it was just an impromptu thing where this guy comes out and, and he's like, what do you need? You know? And, and Chris is like, what do you have? You know, and I'm in the back trying to act like I'm passed out and stuff like that. And, and the, the, you know, the guy pulls out his you know, and, and Chris, another guy that was fast as lightning. I mean, this guy, and, and, you know, so it was like, he, you could just see him, he, you know, he unlocked the door and man, he slammed it open, which stunned the guy. And then the guy takes off running. Well, Chris is right on his tail. Well, I'm in the backseat of this minivan and it's dark. And I'm like, where the hell's the handle? You know, how do I get out of here? And so, so, you know, finally I, I pull the door open and I start taking off after him and, and Andrea. And literally a guy across the street, and this is, you know, this isn't a neighborhood. This isn't like, you know, a major street. This is a neighborhood. Guy takes a shot at me. And I, I mean, would I have been justified in shooting back at him? Yeah. But literally I was, I was hitting the ground, you know, I was getting behind a car, you know, the wheel well of a car for, for cover. And when wow. I got out, the guy was, the guy took off and Chris and I chased him. And he ends up jumping in this car and, and the car takes off. So we, we never got him. Uh, but I mean, talk about scary. I, I mean, yeah. I, I didn't sleep well that night. They, you know, it was, you know, we had a big issue of, you know, our boss came to the scene. All right, show me your guns. You know, do you have them right rounds? Okay. There's nothing black in it. Didn't look like you shot. Okay, fine. You know, just to make sure. Like you said, you get tunnel vision. It's like, right. no, I didn't shoot. Well, yeah, you did. You're missing around, you know, or something like that. None of us shot. None of us returned fire. And as you know, I mean, we're responsible for where those rounds go. You know, the yes. bad guys can just shoot at it. It doesn't matter where that round goes. And I mean, even if I would have been able to shoot back at him, it was, I mean, he was right in front of an apartment complex where there were kids behind him. And it was like, even if I would have been able to, it would have been like, that would have been a no shoot situation. Sorry. You know, yeah, yeah I've been justified in shooting him. He shot at me. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I am not the greatest shot. I, I mean, I was a good shot, but I was not, you know, under those circumstances, you have no idea how your body's going to react. So right. it, it was, it was pretty hairy. You know, I, I, I lost a few nights of sleep over it. But, you know, like everything else, you know, something bad happens. You got to get back in the saddle. You, you got to reengage and, and, you know, get back and do what, what you're paid to do and what you, you know, 
at least for, for me, I love doing it. And so yeah. it, it was, all right, we're, we're going back to work and we're going to try to compartmentalize it, put it somewhere back here where it's not affecting your day-to-day life. Yeah. Now the person I just, I kind of got lost a little bit. The person that shot at you, was that the original person that you guys were chasing? No. Or was this just somebody? Okay. That's what I thought. No, this was somebody else. This this somebody like else. One of his buddies, you know? Wow. Then, yeah. Yeah. You weren't so, even focused on that area at all. You're focused on who's running. And exactly. Some, I mean, oh, and man. This, you know, the brown comes from over here. You know, I mean, you're not even paying attention. I'm, st- I'm trying to get up to Chris and Andrew who are handcuffing this guy. And, and you know, we, Andrew stayed with, with the prisoner and, and we took off after this guy. But like I said, he had too big of a lead and he jumped in a car. We ended up finding the car later at a, at a fast food restaurant and stuff like that. And we towed it and stuff like that, but it, nothing. Nothing Man, ever came of it. That's crazy. Well, you brought up a good thing there. Is there as you look back over your your time in law enforcement, are there other scenarios or situations that caused you to lose sleep? You know, not a lot. I, I mean, I was a I was a hostage negotiator, you know, on SWAT, and so we dealt with you know people that were barricaded or people that had taken hostages or you know you somebody drop a dime on a homicide suspect that was held up, you know, in an apartment, we'd surround it and, and things like that. And, you know, about 90, we were very good at what we did about 90% of the time we were able to get everybody out safely, but about 10% of the time, the people were like, no, I, I know when I come out, I'm going back to prison for, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, life, whatever it ended up being. And they made the decision to end their life, you know, mm-hmm. to put a bullet in their head. And, while that's always tragic, I never lost any sleep over it. And the reason I didn't is because, you know, one, I worked with great people. Two, I had great training. And three, it was always my goal to get that person out safely. So right. I always kind of looked at it like, look, I did everything I could to help you. You made the decision to end your life. And my family was always my my rock. You know, it was like, we're going out to do, you know, for drinks after the shift or we're going, you know, after, after a call up or something like that. And I'm like, no, you know, love you guys, but no, I'm going home because yeah. that for me was, you know, the place to decompress that, you know, those were the people I cared about. Those were the people I love those. That's what was important to me. So I could, I could put that aside and say, no, the, this is, this is good. This recharges my battery. This gets me in a good place. I, I, I was on a podcast this morning with, with a guy in Israel who has a, a, a newborn and uh-huh. we were talking about when I would go to, would go to work, I would always lay down with my daughter at night. You know, I would always put her to bed and we would, we would talk, we would read, we would do all kinds of stuff. And to this day, she, she remembers that as, as something incredibly fun, but I never went to work without her giving me a hug, a kiss and a careful daddy. You know, and, and she said that every night, even when like if she, my wife would, you know, go to the grandparents and, you know, and I would stay home, I would call her, you know, it's like, daddy's got to go to work, you know, hug, kiss, careful daddy, you know, and that kind of stuff. And it was just, it, it was like armor, you know, that's it amazing. Just, and before I left the house, I would always go into our den and that's where we had all our family photos, you know, up and, and I would look at those photos because those are the, those are the people, you know, that you would that, that you're doing this for and, yes. and, and things like that. And I, I remember when I had, if I can tell you one more story, I, sure. I had my leg amputated and I had these tumors in my lungs. My doctor wanted to, to do chemotherapy. And I looked at him and I said, is it going to save my life? And he's like, no, probably not, but it might buy you some more time. And I was eight years into this cancer fight. And I said, well, I, I don't know if I want to do that. If the end result is going to be the exact same thing, but I'll go home and talk to my family. 
And as I mentioned, it's just my wife and daughter and I. So I go home and I start telling my family. My daughter's like, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. It's not like we got a board here or something like that. So we end up sitting around the kitchen table, excuse me, talking about how we all feel about me taking chemotherapy. And then when we're done, my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raise their hand. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm getting out voting for something that I don't want to do. But I remembered back when I was in the police academy and our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people we love the most to class. And as we were learning techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. So I ended up taking chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, but because I loved my family more than I loved myself. And in hindsight, it was the right move. It got me. It was a bridge drug that got me to the drug I'm on now. So, you know, I I mean, there's there's all kinds of lessons you can learn even today. You know, and I've been out of law enforcement for a number of years that, that I that I learned when I was a cop that I can apply today. Terry, that is a beautiful story. And I I, I was going to ask some other questions, but frankly, I can't think of a better way to end this. I mean, that is that's great. You you kept in everything in perspective. You knew why you were doing what you were doing and you knew who you wanted to make sure you got back to. And when you keep those things in perspective, it helps you make a lot better decisions, even you know, as you said, instead of going out and decompressing with the guys or gals and drinking or whatever, which takes you down a whole nother road, you went home and you were you spent time with your family. And that's very, very healthy. And that's probably, you know, goes to why your attitude is what it is now in the face of all the things that you're dealing with now, because you have a healthy outlook on life. You have things in perspective as they should be. Um, so, so kudos to you. Kudos Thank to you. you. So I want to thank you again. My guest today is Terry Tucker, man. Just thank you for what you shared with us, you know, pouring your heart out a little bit at the beginning of this. And uh, it's just been really, really great to have you on. Um, and to all of my listeners, thank you guys so much for continuing to support the nine one podcast. And as I always ask you, make sure you do share it with your friends. And, you know, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us a five star rating and follow us wherever you are. So you'll know when the new episodes are coming out. And, um, you know, if you have any suggestions or some people that you'd like for me to get on, shoot me an email at nine one what dot podcast at gmail.com and until next time have a blessed day thanks for listening to 9 what we hope you enjoyed the show if you have comments or suggestions please email us at 9 what dot podcast at gmail.com and thanks to carlos bail bonding and eric buchanan and associates for making this episode possible 